Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. This is episode 21 of the Blue Grid podcast. And here with me in LA studio, a retired tech surgeon, Jamie Medina, who served in the Air Force for 17 years and medically retired after six deployments. He served as a JTAG. He is the founder of Fixed, which is a veteran service organization. He has three Bronze Star Awards, won many, many, many other accolades. And actually, he can talk about this, and I'll ask him on this in a second. And he has a very interesting story in relation to the movie Restrepo. And actually, he just presented in front of 700 people his story of resilience during the resilience tactical pause here in LA Air Force Base. And a big thing I forget, the shirt that he's oh, wearing, yes. a Wounded Warrior Ambassador, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So he's a part of the Wounded Warrior program and represents it here with us. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Tell us about your Air Force career, 17 years as a JTAG. Yes. So 17 years, I tried to shoot for 20. I didn't make it though. Ended up being medically retired. But what's pretty cool is they prorated me to 20. So it's almost like I served 20 years in. So yes, I was a JTAC for most of that time. And during the war on terror, I either lucky or unlucky, however you want to look at it, was able to serve six combat deployments. I've been to Iraq once, Afghanistan four times, and I've been up by Northern Africa and Turkey in that area as well. Had the opportunity to serve with many different units, 82nd Airborne, 10th Mountain Division, 7th Group Special Forces, 10th Group Special Forces. And I actually have a tattoo here on my arm with the 2nd Regiment of the French Foreign Legion, their commandos. They needed air controllers, JTACs up there. And I remember being up at division. They said, hey, we need air controllers to go with the French Foreign Legion. And then send me, you know what I mean? Mm Because when the heck would I ever get a chance to do that? So So for those listeners who are not familiar with what JTAC stands for, what JTAC does, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. JTAC is a joint terminal attack controller. What you are is you're a forward air controller. So you're the guy on the ground coordinating the symphony of aircraft and mortars and naval gunfire all on the battle space. So you're on the ground with units dodging bullets. And, you know, usually when you're getting shot at, you're the guy looking up, oh, it came from there. Okay. And you want to get your grid and call an airstrike and, you know, blow them up so we can just keep moving forward. So So you're actually the person making a decision about the airstrike? So I'm an advisor. The ground commander, which would be the army ground commander, he owns the battle space, a certain AO, your area of operations. But I had really good relationships with all of my ground commanders and they sort of gave me a, we call it like a pre-assault fire. So I had a, the okay to go ahead and whenever we're getting shot at, just start calling our strikes and just vaporizing everything out there. So yeah. I was, well, I guess I'd say lucky to, to have that while I was downrange. And so when you deploy, do you deploy as a team? Do you do this kind of individually? The community? Both. Okay. Yeah, both. We can, op- we, like I've deployed by myself before, like just me and eight bags of, uh, of gear and uh, equipment and whatnot, or we can go in teams of two, or you can go with a unit. But we're typically farmed out to army units or foreign units, ground forces, ones and twos. Okay. Yeah. And also for those listeners who are not familiar what JTAC training is like, can you tell us about that? Sure. It's pretty tough training. It's very long, very physical, and also very technical as well. You have to speak aircraft. You have to learn how to speak army. You're the liaison between both. I believe the training lasts, oh, when I went, I think it was about nine months or so, and you go through SEER and jump school and sniper schools and all these different schools. So you want to be equally qualified as the units that you could potentially be with out there in the field. So a lot of schools, a lot of different schools that you can go through, mostly army schools. 
what drew you to become a JTAG? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, no, I, I joined, when I joined the Air Force, though, I started out uh, security forces. I did that for about two and a half years. I enjoyed it. I liked it. But I kind of felt like I wanted more. I always had that you know, burning desire in me to do more or be a part of something more. And then 9-11 hit. When 9-11 hit, that was it. I put in my package to go either combat controller, PJ, or TACP. I just wanted to do something else. And within two weeks, they pulled me right out of my security forces unit, and I was on my way to this career field. What was the hardest part about the training? Um, I'd say, I think SEER. SEER was hard for me because it was hard getting, you know, smashed in your face and not being able to do anything back. Like, okay, so, so for those people <laughs> also who are not familiar with SEER, yeah. what does it stand for? Survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. So right. it teaches you, if you were to get caught behind enemy lines, every pilot goes through it, every operator goes through it. And there's a part of that training, a resistance. So you have to learn how to resist if you're being tortured or whatever learn how to comply. Yeah, I had a problem with that. I almost got kicked out a couple times, you know, <laughs> of that. But during the training, I mean, you have psychologists and doctors around. So as you're pretending, you're going through these different scenarios, you know, and, and they'd always ask me, you know, uh, are you okay? You want an academic situation? And I was just mm. fuming, you know, I just, so I left looking like a raccoon. I think I had two black eyes. But yeah, that was difficult for me. But I had to get through it, though, because I really wanted to do this career. So I just had to kind of suck it up in color and, you know, get through it. But oh, God, I hated that. <laughs> that was the toughest part. Too. It was for me, yeah. You know, anything physically, I think we can endure. You know, if you want it bad enough, you can physically get through the training. I don't think there's anything that's impossible. I mean, what one person can do, another person can do, obviously. But the mental part, yeah, that was a little difficult. But I got through it. Okay. And you were saying SEER training was more mental than physical. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Physical, because you know, they have ways of trying to get you to talk, right? But also mental, it's like, okay, well, I just need to get through this. You know, like, I mean, physical, I guess I can take it. Okay. You know, but. I can recall that was a little difficult for me, but okay. I laugh about it now, you know, of okay. course. Do you feel like all of that training prepared you well for the deployments? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that training prepared me for many things, both in the military and even today as a retired military civilian now. The training that I had, I'm applying it now to the real world and I'm completely dominating everything that I'm doing. It's interesting, you know, to be able to harness that and it's applicable to really anything mm -hmm. that you could possibly do. Okay. I would like to know more about your Bronze Star Awards. So tell me about kind of what happened and Gosh, what are the you know, circumstances. Yeah, they all kind of blend together. So the first one that I got was for my, I think, second time in Afghanistan. I was with the 82nd Airborne. What it was was a write-up of my entire deployment. I think the first time I went to Afghanistan, I believe we got, if I get this right, it's written on the narrative, I think 420-something confirmed kills. We've got thousands and thousands of pounds of enemy equipment and weapons. I believe, 74 wounded terrorists. Yeah, just the numbers were just unbelievable for my teammate and I. And so they wrote it up for that, obviously, for contributing to the fight, taking out a large portion. And we were in a very hot area in Afghanistan. And then after a couple months, I went back again. And then that's when I ended up in the Korangal outpost. That documentary, Restrepo, that Sebastian Younger shot when he was down there with um, 173rd Airborne. I was actually there for a while as well. And you can believe the hype. That was probably the most combat I'd ever seen probably four to six firefights a day. They try and overrun your base at night and they constantly kept you awake. I think that was their tactic. And being the only air controller down there, that really kicked my butt down there. So I mean, I've been in lots of different firefights, lots of different things. I've been very lucky. I have to come home from that one. You so much as, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I was really jittery and really I couldn't sleep. You know, that one, that one really got me, but I was able to, to work through that, you know, and then boom, right after that again, deploy again, you know, deploy again. And the last one was for my last deployment where we went as a unit and, uh, yeah, so same thing, just kind of the sum of the entire deployment. Mm -hmm. They used to call me a shit magnet uh, <laughs> because every time I deployed, like, and, and we would go in our teams of, of twos and, and whatnot, and everybody wanted to be my teammate because like, oh, we know Medina's always going to get into it. So <laughs> that was kind of like the big rumor going around, you know, everybody wanted to work with me because you were guaranteed to get in some kind of crap, you know, out there. I don't know, the luck or, or, or unlucky or unlucky. I don't know, however you want to look at it. Okay. But yeah. So you describe a pretty intense deployment tempo, six deployments in 17-year career, but mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, you did something before, then you did the training. So it's actually sounds like in a pretty compressed period of time, yeah, very. you mm -hmm. had a lot of deployments. Can you tell me how long were deployments and did you volunteer? Or well, it depends. You... Yes, I volunteered a lot. I had the hooks in me, sort of uh, uh, chasing the dragon, I guess. So my first one was in Iraq. I was there for about a year. And that one, I was felt a little... I'm going to say mentally beat down after that one because we weren't able to call in as many airstrikes. It'd be 
It'd be like trying to fight an air war over LAX. You know, there's just so many aircraft, so many planes, so many civilians, like just really mixed up. And we did uh, get the chance to call in a couple airstrikes. And, Meaning that you couldn't do it because of the casualties potential? Yeah, potential casualties. And also just there's UAVs and predators and just stuff everywhere. It's like try, so hard to clear the airspace to be able to do a run in to drop a bomb. It's very frustrating. So, but most of that was mostly a lot of firefights. So did a lot of that, but to actually do my job, you know, I was really frustrated. So I remember I did, like I said, about almost a year, I believe it was 11 months in Iraq and then came home for about a month and a half, two months and went to Afghanistan. I volunteered, send me back. I want to go back. I'm not done. You know, I, I needed it for whatever reason. Yeah. And that one was a really rock star deployment. Can I pause on that? Sure. When you say I wasn't done, I needed that. What do you mean by that? Well, it's part of our personality within our career field. We always feel like we want to do more. You know, we want to do more. We've done the training. You know, we, we've listened to the stories of, of our mentors and our elders above us who have contributed massively to the fight. So you want your own story, you know, uh, you, mm, I want to say, I almost felt guilty. I almost felt guilty because I didn't do enough during that, you know, and which I did. Clearly I did. But at that point in time, I didn't feel like it. So I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back. And I was able to. With our operation tempo that we had then, we would get these lists emailed to us where they would say, hey, you know, the 82nd Airborne needs some JTACs over here. Or, hey, 10th Mountain Division needs some JTACs over here. You could pick and choose wherever you wanted to go. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> so yeah, but we were able to do that. And pretty much uh, at any point in time, you could be home for a couple of days and whew, gone again on another deployment. And so when you say a couple of days, actually, how many days were you at home? The first time I believe I was home for about just under 30 days. Okay. Yeah. So I did almost a year, 30 days. and I was gone for six months. And then I came back for three months and gone for another six months. I came back for, I don't know, maybe four or five months and gone for another eight, you know, just nonstop. And looking back now, gosh, that was crazy. That was crazy. <laughs> I, but at the time? At the time, I didn't care. I loved, that's all I cared about. You know, I uh, cared about it more than being married. I cared about it more than having a family. I cared about it more than my own mental health. I cared about it more than physically. I mean, like, I had gotten injured during a couple of appointments and lied. Said, no, I'm good. You know, send me back. Send me back. Like, just, like I said, looking back, I almost wish I had somebody to kind of pull me back and say, no, you know, take a year off at least. Mm. But I think that definitely contributed to some things later on in life that, that I'd gone through. Mm. So what happened to your mental health or physical health or family? <laughs> well, destroyed completely. Marriage fell apart. And then mentally, yeah, I just, like I said, I always wanted to be in the fight. I, everything to me was a fight all the time. Whether I was back home, you know, getting in fights in a bar. Or I remember actually, I don't know when this was, but I had gone to Chevron to go put gas in my car. And I, whether I heard it or not, I thought I'd heard talking behind me. I felt like like somebody or something was closing in on me as I was gassing up my car. I'm like, okay, yep, those guys are behind me. And I, I had a Glock on me and I couldn't have shot at these people right there at the gas pump. Mm. You know, these people behind me like, what the, you know, it's just, just crazy. Like what? Bam. And I just shot right past their heads, right into a, <laughs> right into a building, just plain as day, nothing. Wow. And the whole place scattered ran. And I'm like, okay, I'm just got left. So, I mean, that's even as, uh, you know, coming home as a civilian. I mean, yeah, I always had. When a, was that? Was it after all the deployments? Yeah. So kind of in the yeah. middle. And after all, after most of them, yeah. Yeah. What did you imagine was happening behind you? You know, looking back now, I don't know. I just, I, I remember as I'm talking about it, I'm almost feeling it like, like a, like a pressure, almost like I felt there's pressure around me. Like, a, mm -hmm. like, uh, I couldn't breathe, you know, I guess you could say it was really, really freaky. Well, I was probably, yeah, no, I was drunk at the time. I was drunk pretty much 24 seven. Um, I was back home every day, went broke being drunk every day. You're like those, you know, those Nalgene bottles that everybody carries around, you know, when you're running around or whatever. Mine was full of Jack Daniels every day. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So when was your last deployment? So 2011, 12, I believe it was. Yeah. What was the worst part about your deployments and being deployed? I don't think there really was a worst part for me. I was able to do my job and do a lot of it, you know. Like I said, I think the worst part was just the tempo. I did this to myself, you know, by always volunteering and going and really having, I'm not trying to blame, you know, leadership or anything, but I think, you know, looking back now, there probably should have been some checks and balances in place. A system that would have stopped somebody like you? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But there was really no stopping me. I loved it. I did. I loved it, you know, for better or worse. But obviously sitting here right now, looking back, yeah, I definitely should have taken more time, you know, in between. I think I was afraid to actually. I think I was afraid to take a break. I didn't want to lose that edge. Between my last deployment and the one before the last one, the last, I think I was home for, I was home the longest for, I want to say almost two years. And I was actually afraid to go back. The first time I was ever really afraid was... Uh, you were afraid to come back home? No, no. I was afraid to go deploy again because I thought I was home too long. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, man, I, I think I might have lost my edge. Like I'm feeling human again kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I really was. I didn't tell anybody, but it 
it really scared me to go back because I was thinking, okay, let's do the math here. You know, like you can't get lucky every time. And, you know, I sort of got used to being home. And I think that edge, yeah, the edge definitely, why I thought it was gone, you know, until I got in country during the last deployment. And no, it wasn't gone. It kind of came back. You said you thought that you became too human again? Yeah, I think so. That's how it sort of felt. As opposed to being deployed, then you Just want... always different. So we joke about it, say like, oh, yeah, you know, when you're riding the dragon or whatever, you know, kind of joking about it. But you said you're riding a dragon, riding the dragon, yeah, or slaying the dragon or whatever. It's just a joke that some of us have. But can you tell me about that? It's corny. It's more like a fantasy kind of thing, you know, like the hero that comes to slay the dragon kind of thing, you know, like mm -hmm. you want to feel like that. You want to feel like you're the hero. I said it at work every day. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm slaying the dragons. I don't know. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, same. You know, same thing. But, but yeah, so it's almost like a fantasy type thing versus living in reality, you know, because it's difficult. It's hard. It really is. You know, it takes a toll, you know, on people. War and deployments and losing friends and, and seeing people around you too, you know, losing their lives. And I'm going to say, as we're talking here, I was thinking about something. I was thinking about when I was in Iraq and I want to say probably the worst thing that I'd ever seen or done, I think you asked me that earlier, was changing the diaper to a burnt baby. I'll never forget that. It was a roadside bomb. We were in like roadside bomb alley in Yusufia, Iraq. And yeah, and I remember uh, they had these people just burnt to hell, you know, and uh, the medics were trying to help. We pulled them all on our little base. And I remember I was thinking... Because my son was very young then, so like I was like, oh, change the diaper. I know how to do that. <laughs> so yeah, I just like ran over there and tried to change it. And it was a girl, it was a female, too, burnt little baby girl. And obviously you can't be touching. I didn't care, though. I just, I was like, for some reason, I need to change this baby's diaper. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't think about it. But yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that That's, up. Yeah, Sorry. That was, that was <laughs> the, the worst part that you remember? Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah. It, it definitely was. Yeah. So there's weird, strange things like that, you know, just random things mm -hmm. that you remember, I guess. Mm -hmm. As you were in this fast tempo and you felt like you had to go back, did you recognize, like, I'm losing my family, like, I'm losing my mental health, don't care? Not then. Not then? No. And I didn't care. No, I didn't. I didn't want to be home. You know, it's cliche. You kind of hear people, oh, it's easier back there. Well, it was. You know, it was, I come home and life has gone on, you know. Uh, well, I was married, you know, and then my wife, you know, I didn't really know her anymore. It's And that's typical it happens you know with a lot of people that deploy like that you come back and then you start feeling bad like oh you guys kind of went on without me well yeah of course i mean that's life right i mean if it's still the same it's mm -hmm. that'd be worse if it stayed the same but yeah. you need to take it personal and almost feel like i almost feel like cheated on in a way mm -hmm. you know so i didn't want to be i didn't want to see it i didn't want to be around it mm -hmm. so in some way you wanted it maybe to not be married or yeah i guess at that point in time yeah i just didn't it was care easier. yeah but like i said talking here with you right now and Looking back, yeah, I, well, well, we're here now. I mean, they can't change it, but uh, there's probably, for other people, you know, there's better ways of going about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you have done something differently if no. you could? No. Because okay. everything led me to here right now, you know, and, and here right now, being able to spread that message, you know, and be able to help other veterans who are in need through FIX, through the organization that I work with. No, it was, I kind of sound like a, uh, no, I wouldn't change it. It, it was it had to it had to be worth it because, like I said, we're here now, and now's a good place I'm at. Mm -hmm. One things got really difficult for you after my last deployment. I had a feeling that was going to be it. So, at the last one, they go home, and there's no more. I knew that that was going to be the last one, and and then also I transitioned at active duty, but then I was Air National Guard. So still able to do that. And then I got a civilian job as a federal police officer. So I was also working as a police officer. Once again, the drinking and then started doing drugs, anything, any drug, didn't care. So you working as law enforcement at that point that mm -hmm. you drunk, you said 24-7 yeah. every day. Yeah. Crash to work drunk? Oh, yeah. All the time. I was around trained observers, you know, officers armed up every day, drunk. I just had to be drunk every day. I don't know what, why that is. but You still don't know why you were drinking? Uh, well, yeah, I guess I do. Just to be numb, you know. What were you numbing? Hiding from, I guess, just all the, what's all broken marriage, you know. Like, like really, my personal life had fallen apart, and I didn't want to face that, is what it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you said drugs for the same reason. Anything, yeah, any, anything. anything. Yeah, I would literally do and take anything. Didn't matter, be up for days. But still show up to work, just like, 
do my duties and you know i was able to hide it for a very long time until i crashed uh, our patrol car <laughs> they're like huh okay so let's get you checked out and then i got put on administrative leave from my police job that's when they realized you've been drinking yeah okay yeah and then and then um, did you admit at the time yes i did you you admitted like actually yeah. this is not one time thing yes I'm... of course and then they like i said they put me on administration administrative leave once again through my police job and then brought me back and put me on the night shift as like an admin kind of guy you know like asked me hey you got a handle on it? yeah i'm good i think they felt i want to say they felt bad about really punishing me you know, because they had known about my service and they, they kind of gave me a break, you know, a lot of breaks, which I took full advantage of that, you know, because of who I was and what I've done. People gave me the benefit of the doubt and then I took advantage of that, you know. Mm. So, yeah, the next day I'm pissed drunk again, you know. Mm. Did you know at the time you had a problem? I didn't think so at all. No. You didn't think so? No. no. What, which obviously, you... obviously I did. <laughs> how would you, did you explain it to yourself? Like, I'm, I have to wake up in the morning and drink. Like, how did you explain it to yourself? Gosh, I really don't know. I really don't know. I just did it. Yeah, I just did it. Okay. What else was so painful that you had to be so numb? Uh, you know what it was, actually? And I learned about this later after I'd gone into a couple of programs at the VA. Like I told you, I spent seven months inpatient up in Palo Alto going through the, the programs at the VA. And it's going to sound strange, possibly, but there was something that I did have going on with me. And it was my grandparents, right? I was very close to my grandparents growing up and they meant everything to me, you know, what they thought of me. And they had both passed away at this point in time, right? And I felt so guilty about what I had done during, you know, being deployed a couple times. Because I think you can be honorable and you can be chivalrous in a time of war, right? You follow mm -hmm. the rules of engagement and all that kind of stuff. I didn't always do that. I didn't always do that. And I knew that. And thinking about like what... And I didn't know this until, like I said, I got to the programs later, but I thought, man, if my grandparents knew what I did, you know, like they'd be so ashamed of me, you know, and I was beating myself up over that. However people process things, that's just what it was for me. And one of the psychologists that I was working with, she said to me, she was like, well, they're dead. <laughs> you know, your grandparents are dead. How can you beat yourself up over something that people who aren't here anymore would have thought? I mean, you're imagining this, you know, this is all in your head, really. Mm -hmm. And man, it hit me like a, oh my God. I was like, oh my God, you're right. You know, like you're, you're right. How could I possibly be killing myself over feeling guilty, giving myself consequences over something that never happened, never could happen? You know, yeah. how can I know what they felt like? You know, mm. it's weird. But I think in reality, it was what I felt. You know, I felt guilty over that. You know, was, I was kind of disassociating, obviously. Mm. But yeah, I, I did feel guilty for a lot of things that I'd done. And obviously that's what it was, you know, and masking and drugs and alcohol and masking that, being numb to that. You know, and then I finally did face that a couple of years ago. And, and in doing so, man, I just, I, I feel like I just woke up, you know, like I felt like I was a whole different person, you know, and really since then, uh, and obviously we all have our problems in this and that throughout the day, but every day at the end of the day, I feel like something good always happens, you know what I mean? And it's constantly coaching myself, you know, to get through that, make sure that like, say tomorrow's a better day than today, you know, otherwise it's a stupid day. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm constantly in that, you know, coaching myself all the time to always kind of do better, try and do better. I would like to come back to mental coaching. Sure. I, I like how you phrase that. Can we explore a little bit what you describe as guilt and shame? Sure. That you thought your parents would have. Yeah, what I thought they would have thought of about you, me. Which would cause you to feel To, to give ashamed. myself consequences, yeah, and beat myself right. up over it. Yeah, just thinking about it right now, talking to you about it is, such a strange, it seems crazy to do that to yourself. Why would you do that to yourself? So has it gone away for you? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what was it specifically, you think, that made it go away? I think it was the way Dr. Radcliffe, who was my psychologist at the time, through the VA, just the way she laid it out. You know, I just, I mean, it's as simple as, as one, two, three, like, just like I explained it, you know. So you're worried about what others would have thought about you who aren't even here anymore. You know, why would you beat yourself up over that? Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, I just for that moment, it just... <laughs> I just woke up like, oh my God, oh my God, why am I doing that? Who else is probably doing that? You know, and in a way it's a disassociated guilt and shame, right? Because obviously it's really what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. But for me to accept it, oh, okay, you know, that, that's the way. Mm -hmm. But, and what is that? That's avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. I was avoiding and the masking and the wanting to feel numb, avoiding, right? Mm -hmm. And it took three, almost four years of that complete self-destructive 
behavior, you know, with the job, the drinking. During the resilience thing today, earlier, I had talked about how there was a moment where, and I just, I completely just blew off everything in my life, everything. I didn't care. I just didn't care, you know, really. And there was a moment with my ex-wife and my son, who I just blew off all the time too as well, where they had come to my house and I was passed out. Who knows how many days I've been awake or whatever, but I woke up to like yelling, like my ex yelling at me, like, what the F, you know, this and that, like, get up. You, this last time you're going to flake on your son. This last time, I believe Alex, he was probably, it was probably about nine then. And I remember her yelling at me, yelling at me. I was like, oh, I'd had enough. So I had a, a 45 Kimber underneath my pillows, <laughs> my bed as she's yelling at me. And I, I remember grabbing that gun and grabbing her by her hair in my room. And I've never, I wouldn't do something like this, but I did it that day. And drug her, it was just so, it just felt like so easy. I just drug her into my walk-in closet. As I'm telling you right now, the way I'm seeing it is like, like a Polaroid camera, like click, click, you know, like click, mm -hmm. I grabbed the gun, click, I grabbed her, click, I pulled her into the closet and I held her down and I just put the gun and shot all around her head. Bam, 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 until it ran out. You know what I mean? And she just went, she probably thought I killed her, you know, or something. And I remember grabbing her. Yeah, I remember just screaming in her face. I'm like, now you know, you know how I feel. You know, it's like I was trying to give people traumatic experiences. Mm. I don't know. Just to make them feel, I guess, as bad or causing problems to solve them. Or I, I don't really know the whole psychology behind it. But did you feel that in order for other people to get your pain, yeah. you had to do that? Oh, pushing off on the world. Just like these mass shootings, you know, these kids or whomever. You know, you hear about it about every month now, you know, what's going on. Like, they're so filled with pain, they want others to feel it too. You know what I mean? That's kind of where I was at, you know. Mm -hmm. that's I'm, It may have gone there. I'm sure that was the next step with me, you know, mm -hmm. if not something worse, you know. But in doing that, I just walked out like, ah, no big deal. You know, walked into my room and, but it was a big deal because I saw my son in the hallway, you know, just crying and, you know, just completely terrified, horrified by me. By this, by looking at me, you know, oh my God, would you kill my mother? You know, and. And I remember walking through my room and just, she had gotten up, uh, my, Raquel had gotten up and came out of the closet and uh, just kind of nice and calmly, you know, she was like, Alex, get your things. Oh, we're going to leave now, you know, just and took off. And then after that, I had the police and the SWAT teams and everybody, you know, here I'm a federal police officer, you know, I'm, I'm the three bronze star guy. I'm the, you know, uh, the guy who could do no wrong. And, and I've got the the police department SWAT teams are just around my house. And all I could think about was my, just like, what am I doing? Yeah. I basically said, I'm done. You know, I, I need help. Now I need help. You know, <laughs> it could have been way before that. Right. But it wasn't. And uh, yeah. And that, that sort of started me on this new mission, you know, that I have was to just get myself fixed. I went to the VA. The process of, with that is, is they put me in what I call the puzzle factory, but really like the mental ward of the Veterans Administration. And I, I believe I was there for about uh, about 18 days. Got to make sure you're nice and sober. You know, it was like an assisted detox. So I did that after that. Then I went to like a 30-day rehab, right? So let's deal with the core of your issues of why you're doing drugs and why you're drinking. And, and, and then once you get through that, they said, you probably have some PTSD things going on, <laughs> which I did. And then I went to their men's trauma recovery program, which was awesome. My God, I, that changed my life. Just so many things that I got out of that. And after seven months of that, I went back home. And like I shared at the resilience briefing, <sighs> I felt that since I had gotten better myself, that I had a, a duty and obligation to do something. I put it out there like, I believe that I was probably as bad as you can get, you know? Well, there's much worse. I didn't kill anyone, thank God. I didn't kill myself, you know, but I've been close, close to it quite a few times. And I wanted to put that story out there. It was, it was difficult, you know, obviously. And when I did the ambassadorship, you know, it's it difficult to share that even, you know, today as I'm talking to you right now, <clears throat> but it's necessary, you know, it's necessary because I thought there were, and there were, there's hundreds, thousands of people out there like that. And since doing this, since helping to launch Fixed, this veteran service organization, yeah, we've impacted over a thousand veterans all over the U.S., whether it was counseling or 
taking a crisis call, over a thousand, I don't remember the, the exact numbers, and over 300 crisis calls, like suicide calls. Like They're not calling the 1-800 number, they're calling us. Once again, like I said, it's that human interaction, it's that personal interaction that we're having. Yeah, so like I said, I had a duty and responsibility to do it. And that's definitely lifted my spirit, you know, and it's definitely given me a purpose again. And it's interesting is a lot of the guys and gals who we work with, clients, right? A lot of the clients, after they finish a program with us or graduate Veterans Treatment Court, we give them the option to become a peer support counselor too. That's what we call it, right? So from clients to counselor and seeing that in them, like, oh, now I have a purpose again. You know, now I have a mission again. It's just, it's round around and it's painted back and that could be more fulfilling for me personally. Yeah. Do you feel like, is that what stops you from going back to feeling the way you felt uh, in I'll the never, past? I'll never feel that way again. No, there's no way. Well, I, yes, it's that. Uh, because like I said, now I have a duty and I have an obligation. I have a mission again. I, I have a purpose again. It's clearly defined. And uh, proud of it. You know, I'm pretty proud of it. I have a great team. A lot of people support us. I mean, everybody from god dang senators and congressmen and judges and you know everybody likes what we're doing because it's working it's absolutely working and i have proof that's working <laughs> uc berkeley school of public policy last year they heard about us and they conducted a study on us at the six months we had a couple of interns from berkeley and they determined that fix has a 97 percent success rate with our program graduates so it's absolutely working that's and wonderful. yeah it is it's unbelievable <laughs> you know we got top nonprofit of the year is only around three years and every year we get it and it just all these accolades and you know it's it's not me it's it's the team of people it's these people who first were working for free you know because once their lives had, had turned around they now you know work for us it's remarkable it's profound truly a not a very religious guy but i feel like i am blessed in a way with all this because we we're we're absolutely making an impact we're absolutely making a difference you know mm -hmm. like I say it's working it's unbelievable helping other people yeah it's great yeah. yeah is there anything at all that would have prevented you from being in the situation where you shot around your wife's head is there anything at all at that point you think that could have helped you no I think it had to happen I think it had to happen well it did you know it did happen but it wasn't like the drinking of the drugs it wasn't crashing a car it wasn't getting in fights. I wasn't shooting at somebody for no reason at Chevron. It was that. I had to walk out of that and I had to see my son. And I didn't talk to them. Raquel's like my best friend now, my ex-wife. We're best friends now and I couldn't be more happy about that. And I have a great relationship with my son now. But when I got out of the program, it took about a good two years before I could even talk to them. Well, before they would even talk to me because they thought I was full of it. I was just manipulating and, you know, working the system or whatever. But I wasn't. And I'm not. And so for the first time in my life, I'm actually honest, you know, with myself and others. And like I said, just trying to share that story and put it out there in the hopes that it'll touch somebody. And it is. So that's the right thing to do. Can you put into words how you felt in the darkest moments before that happened? Uh, I just, I just didn't care. I didn't care. I don't know how else I could really explain that. I just, I absolutely didn't care. I didn't care about what happened to me. I didn't care about what happened to others. I mean, obviously, and I acted that out. I acted out that guilt, you know, that anger and shame. You know, I was acting it out. I was making victims of those closest to me. And really like, that's just terrible. Nobody should ever do something like that. Nobody should ever have to live something like that or put their loved ones through something like that. And before it ever gets that far, I, I would hope somebody would reach out. And so, you know, when I ask you, do you think that somebody could have done something to prevent you from being in that position? And you said no. I don't think so. So I guess what does it mean for maybe service members who are really struggling with dark times? You know, I don't know. For me, and just knowing who I am, I had to go through something. I had to go through that. Whether I lived or I died going through, but I had to go through it. It had to be intense and it had to be very profound for me to get it. I don't know if I'm dense or thick-headed or whatever you want to think, but I had to go through that. And like I said, it got me to today. So, and today I'm definitely in a better place. And I don't know, I, I'm almost thinking, like I said, I would hope that it wouldn't get that far with others, but. How about let me try to maybe explore differently. 
So there is a point at which you cared. Yes. Because that's why you wanted to become a security forces and then JTA, right? So there was a point at which you cared about mm-hmm. helping people. And then a lot of things happened in life and maybe you saw a lot of things that normal human beings shouldn't see. Yeah. And then you got to arrive at a place where you didn't care mm-hmm. about yourself or anybody else. So somewhere in between, what would have been a point of interference for you? You know, I think a lot of it too was a bit of a personality okay. thing too as well, because I'm, I'm getting ready to get out of the military, right? Like all that's coming to an end and I'm knowing it's coming to an end. And I think a lot of it, just fear, you know, uh, I was just afraid, I think, of what was to come. So I just started destroying myself and destroying everything. I don't know, but I, th- but I think, yeah, it must be a, must be a personality thing. It's like, hey, I'm this JTAC and, you know, I have this whole image and life I'm living and it's coming to an abrupt end, you know, and I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with it. You mentioned earlier Sebastian. Younger. Younger. And I'm presuming you read his book, The Tribe, I think it's called. Oh, the yes, tribe, I have. The mm-hmm. Tribe. What are your thoughts on that? You know, kind of men go to combat, right? Men go to combat so that they feel related and they feel connected. And and when they feel that disconnect from the rest, they feel disconnect from from adventure or heroism. Mm -hmm. Shame. Yeah, shame takes over. He's spot on. I think he's 100% on it. I went through it myself. And I think it's applicable even like, what are we talking about today, right? The suicides. It's people killing themselves, you know, a broken spirit, not being a part of something, you know? And I think, yeah, that can lead you down a very dark place. And it did. But also, there's a pivot point, though. It is that human interaction. It's the people that care about you, the people that are reaching out to you. Even if you don't reach out, I think it's up to us that if we know somebody like that who is isolating her, it's our duty and our responsibility to grab a hold of them and bring them back, you know, pull them back in. Even if in their own heads, they feel like they're not a part of it. And they still are. But it's what we believe, right? So I think each of us, should slow down enough to take a look at what's important and who's important, you know, to us. And if we do know somebody like that, to go look them in the face and grab, get a hold of them. Do you think that Raquel was trying to do that? <laughs> I think she tried uh, many times, but I avoided it with, with the drinking, the drugs. So I'm going to poke a little bit more. So then, then how do you do that? When somebody doesn't want to help himself or herself, how do you help them? She didn't stop, obviously. You know, Mike, she didn't stop. She was willing to go the distance with that, you know, to still bug me because she knew for whatever she believed that I was still in here or still was worth it. And look what she had to go through, you know, and then that happened and that's what it took for me. So in a way, she never really did quit. You know what I mean? She kept pursuing and stayed persistent with trying to remind me who I was or who I really am, you know, and this homicidal suicidal maniac is not who I was you know so I definitely owe a lot to her for not quitting on me I'm sure I would have OD'd or whatever the hell but I guess I look at that now and say that yeah she never gave up she never gave up on me you know I owe her a lot so with those people who don't want the help or a hard case I think it's worth it. Don't give up on them. I think it's definitely worth it to keep pursuing that. So it'll be more than just a phone call or showing up. Stay persistent if they mean that much to you. You went through treatment. Yes. You described it being very helpful. Are there moments that you still, or are there still kind of residual symptoms that you struggle with? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Not residual? Yeah, yeah, there is. You know, it's funny. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's funny, but I think it is. So... I have to do all my shopping at midnight because I can't stand being in a grocery store, you know, like when it's filled with people and I'm sitting there and it's just beep, beep. Like I just get up and I'll walk away. I'll leave my cart filled with food and I'll just take off. Well, <laughs> just thankfully there is Amazon and food <laughs> delivery now. Thankfully there's Safeway, right? Safeway stays open until like 1 a.m. But no, it's funny. Little things like that. I can go from zero to murder in a second. And I know that, you know, and I just, I'll stop. And, you know, I'll just walk away and go stare at a bush or something or a tree. <laughs> count to 10, count to 1,010. I still have, yeah, moments where, like I said, where I can go from zero to to murder in a second. But I I have enough, I think, practice now and enough mental coaching, you know, myself, like, 
you know, calm down, walk away. You know. Yes. Can you tell me about mental coaching and mental practice? What does that mean? So it sounds like you've learned some very specific techniques that, tools. that help you now. Yes. Can you uh, give me examples of, so what is mental coaching for you? So for me, it's being able to recognize a trigger or a situation that's going to make me mad or kind of know it beforehand, right? So I've already been through a lot of different things like that. But enough to slow down. Sweating, right? Heart pounding. I could feel myself getting jacked up over whatever. So you recognize physical yes, symptoms. Yes, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then I'll stop myself. How do you stop yourself? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just talking to myself, I guess. You know, I'm like, okay, why are you freaking out? What's going on? What I think is happening may not really be happening. Let's remove myself from the situation. It's funny. Like when you go through the VA, they give you a whole bunch of techniques, tools and stuff to manage or deal with it. And the last resort is always remove yourself from the situation. That's my first resort. Okay. <laughs> I immediately remove myself from the situation. I'll take a walk, leave, go. Like, can we, can we talk about this in 10 minutes? Whatever it may be. You know? So you recognize physical symptoms first. Yes. Uh-huh. And then you go to is, I'm just going to walk I'm going to get it. I have to walk away from this. I'll, I'll, we can have this conversation or, you know, I'll reattack it or something. But at the moment, I can feel myself just really like something building. Yeah, I, I need to leave right now. I'll just go take a walk, you know, or something. <laughs> As, but that's how as, I manage As you're it. taking your walk, what's going through your mind? Some of it's laughing, actually. <laughs> like, I can't, why, am I, why am I acting like this? Okay, you know, so why? you recognize some of it is maybe not that serious? Yes, yeah, okay. absolutely. Like I said, if what I think is happening, is it really happening? Most of the time it's no. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, just kind of chuckle or whatever, take a few breaths, you know, and come back around. And I can usually laugh it off, that dark humor, I guess. Okay, so some of it is being lighthearted about... Absolutely. And then part of it is recognizing maybe your perceptions isn't reality. Yeah, absolutely. reality. Okay. And what else? What's helpful? My friends or my family. I'll talk about it. I don't, I don't hide these things, you know, when they happen. Like, hey, I was having a conversation with so-and-so and I was about to flip out and throw a freaking computer at their head. You know, but <laughs> I should laugh. But, you know, I'll tell people about that and then they kind of laugh too, but... Anyway, you know, it's, I'm not going to do it. You know, I know I'm not going to ever do that. I know I'm not going to ever act out. I mean, and I've recently had gotten an argument with somebody and, and I felt myself getting like that and I just sort of stopped, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to argue. I don't want to argue with How you. How did you stop? What did you say to yourself? Just abruptly stop. Like, like I said, like it, it feels almost like a wave or something, like a tidal wave. I feel it coming out in me. And as I start to feel that, I'll just, I'll usually, I kind of laugh <laughs> and I'll stop like, oh my God, you know, what am I doing? And I could pretty much pivot off of that. And we can go back to whatever we're talking about. Or like I said, if I feel a little more, then I'll leave. I'll just ruin myself from the situation and come back. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you did some of the things that you may be not very proud of, mm-hmm. does it ever scare you that you can be that person again, that you've discovered something about yourself that you didn't Absolutely know? Absolutely not. No, I'll never be that again. Never. No, I, I, I know what you mean. You know, I'm human, right? You get mad, you get frustrated at certain things, but nothing, I don't think anything will ever get me to that point again. I don't know who that person was. Like talking about it now with you, I talking about it, I'm not reliving it. Not really, because I just, I don't know who that person was. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. No, I'll, I'll never, never go down that road again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there a daily ritual or routine or something that you do, you have to do every day in order to keep your sanity? No, there's not. Or maybe up. weekly or something. There's not, no. I, I just get up and... You know, usually go for a run or run my dogs or, oh, there you go. Yeah, I get up and I usually, I always, I have to walk my dogs. I, always, I have to walk my dogs or run my dogs. That's about the only thing that it's routine to me. And then, then it's off to work. With what we do, I mean, there's something new every day that happens, you know. We have so many clients and there's so many moving pieces and I look forward to it every day. However, I don't take too many days off though, but, but I probably should. I don't know why I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Anything could be heroin, huh? I enjoy it though. It's not work to me. I'm around a lot of good things and it makes it worth it to have a purpose, just a massive, you know, important purpose is what, that's how I look at it. And the, on the flip side, like the people that we work with, I mean, you get it back, you get it back tenfold just by seeing someone else's life turn around, you know, and man, which brings me back again to what we talked about today. Well, you're talking about resiliency, but, but to me, like I brought it up, I'm not sure if you guys heard it, but like this before, but it's the spirit, you know, within you a broken spirit, you know, and, and I think, yeah, I think it's the most uh, tragic thing that there is. And the only way you get through it is, you know, those human connections and interactions with your family, your friends, it lifts you, lifts you back up again. Broken spirit is what causes 
in your mind, kind of mental breakdown. The suicide things and that despair, that isolation, that depression. Yeah, I think so. I think that's huge. What broke your spirit? Hmm. I did. I believe I broke my own spirit through just avoiding and and manipulating and and drugs and alcohol. It was, it was a combination, but it was all by my own hand. Nobody did this to me. You know, I, I did it to me. And like I said, again, I, I just thank God that that people who I made victims of were still there to catch me. Still there to catch me and prop me up. And yeah, that's what I do now. Mm-hmm. That's what you see as your mission? Yes, that's what absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In a way, it's a shame that all, all those things had happened. But also, you know, there's a silver lining there. It all got me to today. And I love today. I'm in a good place. I'm in a good mood. I'm around good people all the time. That's what it's all about. Yeah. I always ask that of all of my guests. For those people who are struggling with difficult times today, for those airmen, every service member yeah. that is struggling with difficult times, what would be your suggestion? And coming from a place of somebody who really knows what it's like and being open about what it's like to be in a really, really dark, difficult place. Right? So coming from somebody who tells me, I don't know that there's anything that could have been done to prevent this really bad event Mm -hmm. that could have been just, you know, like two millimeters off, right? That bullet could have been two millimeters off to kill your wife. Yeah, because someone went through the walls too. My son was standing in the hallway. Yeah. So from your perspective... What can you suggest to those service members who are struggling? I understand, you know, and, and I do understand it's a, it is a dark place and isolating and you fall down that rabbit hole, you get further and further. God, I would just implore you, I beg you to not let it get that far. If you're carrying a gun with you every day, if, these are all signs, right? If you're shooting people, these are all things like I got away with probably 20 different things that I should have gotten hit up on, you know, before I'd done that. Like these are things I was acting upon them and who are struggling and you're acting upon these things now. It's a progression, right? So God, man, I I beg you guys just reach out or those of you out there who know somebody like that, you think you're saving them, but you don't, I don't want to get them in trouble or I don't want them to lose, you know, their military career. Or, I mean, I, I retired. This all happened before I retired. I still retired with all my benefits. I still retired with more. So actually they're not going to just the military isn't going to drop you. So, so if you're afraid to hurt someone's career, you're not going to hurt their career. You know, you're only hurting them by not turning them in, by not ratting them out, by not, you know, facing it, by not confronting them or helping them to face it. No matter what, just say something, tell somebody. The circumstances, they'll work themselves out. But in the here and the now, either put it out there, ask for help. More than likely, it's going to be somebody knows something. Like, for example, me, I wasn't going to do it. I wish to God that I would have, but I didn't. It took somebody else not giving up on me. And the person that I made the ultimate victim in the entire thing, she was the one who, uh, who still caught me in the end and still propped me up. Imagine you're talking to people who, when you said, I didn't care, I didn't care. Imagine you're talking to that population. How do they care? How to make them care? I don't know. Uh, you know, as you're asking me that right now, I was picturing myself. And I'd slap myself if I could to get their attention. I'd want to get my attention. Whatever that means, physically or mentally. Okay, so my son, he'd never seen me like that. You know, he didn't really see me at all. I mean, I, I avoided everything and everyone. But even in that, rage and that haze and I saw him it took the wind out of my sails right there you know looking at my my kid who's just completely horrified by the side of me you know so even if you're too wrapped up in your own mind and someone cares enough about you maybe they'll bring something that they know you care about you know let you see them you know seeing you like that there's no drug or alcohol or amount of anything that you could utilize to block that I don't think so I think that'll stop anybody dead in their tracks, whether it's a parent or a child or, or something. It's something that, you know, that, that they do care about. 
Do you feel like you care about yourself now? Yeah, absolutely. What changed that for you? All of it. It's the combination of the going to treatment and working to have a relationship again with my son and my ex-wife and all the good that has been happening since I founded Fix and this endeavor. I absolutely, truly, truly like myself. Yeah, I, I do. I'm really, really happy these days with where I'm at and what I'm doing. Before we started recording this interview, we talked about liking yourself and you yeah. said you just started like yourself yeah. recently. Probably, well, I'm 41. That's it, probably around 39 and a half. Yeah, I did. I, I just accepted what I was doing, right? Like, I mean, I stopped for a minute and like, wow, like we're really doing some good here. Like, you know, like we're really actually making- You a, mean with, with, with fixed. fixed? Yeah, and a positive, and for myself, I'm doing better things for myself now. I don't drink myself to oblivion. I don't act like a complete jackass, you know? Well, sometimes I do, but- I'm kidding. But uh, like, I don't. Are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, no, I just, I have more fun now and I do smile more. And uh, I, I like where I'm at. I absolutely like where I'm at. Yeah. And it's a good feeling. And I accept that and I embrace that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I, I couldn't be happier, honestly. Okay. Thank you so much for this interview. Hey, thank yeah. you. Thank you for coming out to the LA. I'm, of I'm sorry I missed the, the uh, actual presentation. You probably got a better presentation here, maybe. Good, good. <laughs> No, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I really hope that a lot of people hear it. I I hope it does touch anyone out there who's fallen down that rabbit hole and who's isolating because they matter. You know, they absolutely matter. But the thing you need to know, you matter. And it's your your family, friends that are going to be there to remind you of that. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.